We're continuing to talk this year about the promise that Jesus made to his apostles that it was good for him to go to be with the Father because when he would go to the Father that one would be sent to them that would enable those who believed in him to do even greater things than he had done. Greater things than even Jesus did while he was living here in this earth. And that one that he would send is the Holy Spirit. And so for the last several weeks as we've been talking about how there's a need for Northwest to get uh, in mission and a need for new vision and renewal of purpose, uh, that we've got to stop and before we go on mission and before we renew our purpose, and we've got to spend some time talking about the Holy Spirit because it's by the power of the Holy Spirit that we're enabled to do all of those things. And so a couple of weeks ago, we talked about how uh, the Holy Spirit is poured out on dry lands and that the Spirit is poured out on, uh, on God's people in ways that bring new vision and new life and new purpose. Last week, we talked about how uh, the Holy Spirit is poured out into those who receive Jesus and those uh, the Spirit is poured out on Christians, and then it's poured into us. And today what we're going to be talking about is how it's not just poured into us as individuals, but that the Spirit has a role in the church, and that the Spirit is, is poured out among us and dwells among us, and that it's not just an inside-of-me thing, but it's a dwelling-in-our-midst kind of thing. And we're going to talk about what that means, and uh, we're going to begin today, I, I want to ask you, uh, to just take a moment and think about somebody who is really, really worldly. Uh, the, Jimmy's translation earlier talked about fleshly, someone who is just living in the world. And you would say, man, that is a worldly person. That's someone who is living the life uh, of the flesh and not the life of the spirit. That person, how they act, how they talk, how they treat other people, what are some of the things that you envision that person doing that make you think, man, that is a worldly person. And then we're going to go into the text that, that was read earlier, and I want you to listen to how Paul thinks about it, because I think you're going to be struck uh, by how he envisions it being very different than you do. 1 Corinthians chapter 3, starting in verse 1 through 9, he says, Brothers and sisters, I could not address you as people who live by the Spirit, but as people who are still worldly. Now remember, Paul's writing to the church in Corinth. These are Christians in Corinth, Christians who have the Spirit dwelling in them. And he says to them, I can't even address you as people who live by the Spirit because you're too worldly. And you have to think, what are they doing that's so worldly that he can't even address them as spiritual people? He says, you're mere infants in Christ. I gave you milk, not solid food, for you're not ready for it. Indeed, you are still not ready. You are still worldly. For since there's jealousy and quarreling among you, are you not worldly? Are you not acting like mere humans? For when one says, I follow Paul, and another, I follow Apollos, are you not mere human beings? What, after all, is Apollos? What is Paul? Only servants through whom you came to believe, as the Lord has assigned to each his task. I planted the seed, Apollos watered it, but God has been making it grow. So neither the one who plants nor the one who waters is anything, but only God who makes things grow. The one who plants and the one who waters have one purpose, and they will each be rewarded according to their own labor. For we are co-workers in God's service." You are God's field, God's 
building. You are God's field, God's building. How does Paul know whether the Corinthians are of the spirit or of the world? How does Paul know whether they're infants or whether they're mature? How does Paul know whether they're milk eaters or meat eaters or milk drinkers? Paul's being pretty inflammatory here. If I'd have walked in this morning and started my sermon to you guys and said, I wish I could teach you guys advanced and important stuff about Christianity, but you're just a bunch of babies. You're going to get pre-K Christianity this morning because that's all you can handle, you little infants. This is Paul's letter to Corinth. He says, I, I can't give you advanced Christianity because you're so worldly and you're not of the spirit. I can't even teach you about important things. So here's the little stuff. And what defines whether you're a meat eater or a milk drinker, a spiritual champion or a big spiritual baby is this. Whether or not you're united with other Christians. It's whether or not you understand that your brothers and sisters are there for you to be in peace with and to show love to and not to be jealous of and to bicker with. So a minute ago when I asked you to picture someone who's worldly, you probably picked someone that's doing all kinds of worldly sins and their mouth is awful and their body's doing things that shouldn't be doing in places that shouldn't be doing it. But how many of you pictured someone that's going to church and bickering with someone else that's going to church with them. Because that's what Paul's talking about. He says, listen, if you're going to be part of the spirit community that, that's going to do the greater things that Jesus talks about, you can't be bickering and jealous with one another. If you want to be one of the advanced, mature Christians, you've got to start getting along with your brothers and sisters in Christ. And if you can't, you're just a big spiritual baby. Paul says to the church in Corinth. You know, it, it's, it's important for us, and it's something we often miss. We think about so many other things, but this is one of the greatest challenges of Christianity, is to find people who aren't like you and that you would not normally love, and to love them in a way that confuses the world by the power of the Spirit working in us and through us. So that we come together and, and people say, Man, what, what do you guys have in common that allows you to treat each other the way you treat each other? We say, well, we've got a shared and common spirit. We're part of the body of Christ, and if we're in the body of Christ, how can we be divided? And we get the advanced stuff of Jesus because we're getting to, to move into the challenging stuff, and we're willing and able to do that because we love one another and get along with each other. And, and it's at that point that Paul would say, all right, let's start talking about the good stuff because you've learned to love each other. Because if you haven't done that, we can't go anywhere. And so the Spirit has this desire to come in among the people. And there's divisions that are running amok in Corinth. There's all kinds of divisions. There's arguments about who their favorite preacher is. Some people are going to go, man, I like Paul. Paul's my guy. And other people are going, really? Because I'm more of an Apollos kind of person myself. And Paul comes in and he says, we're just the servants. We're not God. If you're united in Christ, it doesn't matter who your favorite preacher is. They get into some problems later in, in the passage that kind of was around where Brian was reading earlier in 1 Corinthians 11, where they're doing all kinds of things wrong in the Lord's Supper, and it's based on how much money they have. The rich people were coming together to eat with the rich people, and the poor people were eating with the poor people. And that's totally normal in the world, but it shouldn't be in the church. 
Because if you're a meat eater, you know that it doesn't matter how much money you have. When you come together to eat, you can eat with all your brothers and sisters, regardless of their tax bracket. There's other problems in Corinth where some people have good spiritual gifts and other people have boring spiritual gifts, and they start sorting each other into the cool kids and the boring kids based on the gifts that the Spirit has given them. We're going to talk a lot more about spiritual gifts next week. But all of these different ways, the, their favorite preacher, how much money they make, what their gifts are and their abilities are that they're using in the church become different ways for them to get divided amongst themselves and to be jealous and to argue. And Paul says, you're just a bunch of babies. You're just a bunch of babies. You don't even understand anything that I'm trying to teach you. And we get that imagery well, but there's some other stuff that's harder for us to get uh, in English that's there in, in the Greek. Uh, and one of the reasons it's hard is because if I want to talk about all of you, or if I just want to talk about you, David, I use the same word. So uh, if I said, you need to get up and leave right now, you're all going to go, me or all of us? Do we all need to leave? And don't get up and leave, uh, you know, stay. Um, you, stay. You see, you don't know if I mean all of you or one of you. Um, in Greek, that problem does not exist. There's different words in Greek. So if I want to say, in Oki, we kind of have it, right, with y'all. Uh, y'all, stay. And you're like, okay, that's all of us. Um, y'all, leave. You get who I'm talking to. You, stay. Uh, I think in Boston, I've heard it's yuns. I don't know, who says Ewans? Is that, Jeff, is that a thing? Nope. No, I don't know what I'm talking about. That's okay. So there's different ways to do the plural you in slang, but, but really in English it's not there. In Greek it is. What you miss in your Bible translation is that Paul almost exclusively uses the plural you. He's almost never addressing individuals. He's almost always addressing the collective. And so when Paul writes in 1 Corinthians chapter 3, you are the field, he does not mean you by yourself are the field that God plants stuff in and grows. What he means is you collectively as the body of believers that come together in the community are the field. When he says you are the temple, he doesn't mean you and your body are the temple. What he means is that you as the church, as Northwest Church of Christ, you all are a temple collectively. And that starts to have a different meaning. It starts to have a different application. Uh, so in, in Greek, Paul is literally using the word este, which means you plural, instead of e, which is you singular. Um, in, in English, if I was trying to explain that to you, I would say Paul is using you instead of you. That makes sense, right? Uh, it doesn't. But in Greek, it makes all the sense in the world. And so translators have to try and find ways to deal with this. Uh, the New American Standard Version really just goes straight into English, word for word. It's committed to that, that, that very literal translation. And so in 1 Corinthians 3, verse 16 and 17, uh, here's how the New American Standard reads. Do you not know that you are a temple of God and that the Spirit of God dwells in you? If any man destroys the temple of God, God will destroy him, for the temple of God is holy, and that is what you are. This scripture is often quoted um, by people to give you a reason to eat healthy. There's a reason to maybe not get tattoos or too many piercings, at least not the ones that I don't think I should have. You shouldn't have them either. Uh, or maybe this is a good reason to not smoke cigarettes or make other unhealthy choices. Uh, maybe you should go exercise so you can take care of your temple. Now, is it true that the Holy Spirit dwells in you? Yes. 
Does that in and of itself make you like the temple? Yes. Is that what Paul is saying here? Probably not. Because Paul is using the plural you. He's not saying you are a temple. He's saying you are a temple. And doesn't the sentence make more sense anyways when you understand that? Where if it's saying, uh, if any man destroys the temple of God, which is their own body, then God will destroy him. That feels redundant, doesn't it? If you destroy yourself, God will destroy you. It's like too late. I beat him to it. But the NIV translates it a little bit differently. They're adding words to try and help you understand the meaning. And so here's how the NIV translates the same verse uh, with words that aren't there but to give meaning that is. Don't you know that you yourselves are God's temple and that God's spirit dwells in your midst? If anyone destroys God's temple, God will destroy that person. For God's temple is sacred and you together are that temple. You see the difference in the meaning? It changes. What's happening now is it's saying that, that don't you know, church family, that when you come together as a family of people that are in a covenant special uh, spiritual relationship with one another, that you're the temple. And the temple is where God dwells. And God dwells in your midst. And God dwells among you and in the collective. And now the sentence when it says, if any one of you destroys the collective, the community, the family, then God will destroy you makes way more sense, and it's not redundant at all. If you destroy the unity of the family of Jesus Christ, then God has bad news for you. He takes this very seriously, and it's not okay for you to bring division and, and, and jealousy and quarreling and bickering and backstabbing and all the stuff that we don't want any part of in our church family. God says, I don't want that either. And people that bring that into the family are big spiritual babies, and God's going to confront them. God's going to deal with those who are divisive to the family. But it also has this promise that God's going to dwell among us. God's going to be in our very midst. And this isn't unique to Corinthians. In fact, it's not even unique to the New Testament. As far back as Leviticus 26, I mean, in the garden, God walks with Adam and Eve. But in Leviticus 26, it says, I will walk among you and be your God, and you will be my people. Jeremiah 32 says, they will be my people, and I will be their God. Among the people, God will live, and God will dwell. In Ezekiel 37, he says, my dwelling place will be with them. I will be their God, and they will be my people. God says, I want to live with you. And again, over and over again, I'm going to keep saying, we too often envision God as a long time ago and far, far away. And over and over again, God says, I want you to be my people, and I want to be your God, and I want to walk with you, and I want to be among you, and I want to be in your midst. And Jesus even teaches uh, that, that when one or two, the two or more gather in my name, there I will be with them also. And there's over and over again this promise that God will be in the community and the family of believers who claim his name. And so all the way to the very end in Revelation 21, it, it says, And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Look, God's dwelling place is now among the people. And he will dwell with them. 
They will be his people and God himself will be with them and be their God. God wants to be with us. And it's the incredible thing about the Holy Spirit is that we don't have to anticipate the day when that will happen. Is that the Holy Spirit not only dwells in us, which it does. We're promised that if you're in Christ, the Spirit dwells in you. But it also exists among you and in the collective and in the community. We are the temple. We are the body. We are, when we are coming together, have God's Spirit among us and in our midst in a special way that does not exist when we're on our own. That when we're, as individuals, there is something about what the Spirit is able to do that is lacking from our interaction with, with God. More than just an assortment of Spirit-indwelled individuals, to let, together we collectively become what Paul describes in, in his letter to Corinth as the field and the temple and the body. And next week we're going to talk about how the importance of the gifts that he gives us and the diversity of talents come together to work and do the things of Jesus. But when we come together as the temple, we start to do the things of Jesus. And we start to do the things of God. And as we come together and the Spirit is among us, we as a community ask, what would Jesus do in this place? And then we actively do that thing. Because we are in Christ. We're in Christ. And for Paul, he uses this phrase, in Christ, over and over and over again. And I want to talk about that for a few minutes. This being in Christ, it's mentioned 83 times in Paul's writings, that you're in Christ. Uh, it's mentioned, let's see, 83 times. Um, outside of Paul's writings in the New Testament, the phrase in Christ is only used once in one of Peter's letters. But Paul uses it over and over again. It's part of the actual, absolute core of his understanding about who Christian people are, is you are in Christ. In the Lord is mentioned another 47 times. In Him, another six times. We're talking about over 100 times that Paul in his letters is writing in Christ, in the Lord, in Him, in Christ, in the Lord, in Him, in Jesus over and over again. And, and Paul's understanding of this shapes his understanding of the need for unity because Paul understands that those who are in Christ have a special responsibility to each other. And I want you to kind of visualize this because this, this for Paul is really lo location kind of language. Uh, let me, get, let me get four volunteers to come up because I, I, I want you to be able to really visualize this and I can't do it by myself because that's the point, right? So I need four volunteers. Sure, Carter, come up. Elliot. Yeah, can, okay, my whole row. Yeah, come up. Let me get a few more. A few more volunteers. Caleb, you want to come up? Yeah, Caleb's going to come up. Okay. I need you guys to get in this little rope. Okay. Now pick it up. You're going to hold it. You are. Who's going to hold this front? Here, Kenzie, you come hold the side. Get in there. All right. Where are you right now? You're in Christ. You see, you got a sign, right? Can you read it backwards? In Christ. So where are you? In Christ. Where are they? In Christ. Now, when they're in Christ, are they there by themselves? No. When you're in Christ, are you there by yourself? No. There's this myth in the world that we live in. Well, see, sometimes people get divisive and it falls apart. <laughs> When you're in Christ, there's this unity that's required and expected of you. 
And in the one anotherness of being in Christ, you're supposed to live in agreement with all the other people who are in Christ. Now, do each one of, of us who have God's, uh, who have been baptized into Jesus Christ, do we get the Spirit living in us? Yes. So is the Spirit in you? Yes. But is the Spirit also in them? Yes. Is it also in the collective? Yes. So that in this space, inside of this rope, for all of those who are in Christ, the Spirit is not only in them as individuals, it is in, in their midst as a community. That they become the body of Jesus who are in Christ. Does this make sense? For Paul, he understands us to all be in this big circle that doesn't just include these four, but it includes all of those who are in Jesus through faith that have the Spirit dwelling in them, have the Spirit dwelling among them. Uh, okay, you guys can go sit down. Caleb, thanks. And Myro also. They're outside of Christ. It's an illustration. It's a limited illustration. We need to continually hold that visual in our mind. That when we are in Christ, that we're not there by ourselves. Paul never preaches about a personal relationship with Jesus Christ that, that can happen apart from the church. It does not happen, it's not in the book. If you've ever heard someone talk about a personal relationship with Jesus Christ, they're adding that. It's a nuance that we add because we like to have an individual and private thing with God. And, and we say, that's just between me and God. There's very little in your spiritual life that should be just between you and God. The reality is what it belongs to Jesus belongs to the entire group of people who are in Christ. Because the Spirit is in us and it is among us. God is not only over us, but God dwells in our midst. And he makes his dwelling place with his people. And so if you're in, in Christ here and you're in this community and you're picking fights and carrying grudges and you're not forgiving the other people that are in Christ, you're doing this wrong. You're a milk drinker, not a meat eater. You are a big spiritual baby if you're fighting with all the other people who are in Christ with you. You've got a problem. And if you're dividing and attacking and destroying the temple, which is the collective group of people, then God's going to confront you and judge you for that. This is how important unity is for Paul. And, and we give up on unity in so many different ways. We kind of just say, well, I just won't be around them, or I'll just ignore them, or I'll just sit on the other side, or I'll just go to a different church down the street, or I don't have to consider that brother or sister uh, in Christ my brother or sister because they go somewhere else and I'm not ever... If they're in Christ, they are your brother and sister, and you're required to live as if the Spirit is holding you together, and if you're trying to push them apart, you are resisting the Spirit. If you want to be in Christ, you've got to do it with your brothers and sisters. And once you do it, and this is, this is really, this is where we get to the, the meat. Once you start to do this, where you're not resisting the Spirit's desire to bring those who are in Christ into unity and community with one another, here's what you start doing, is you start looking at the world and you see, as a group, the way uh, that Jesus would live in the world. So you look out and you say, if Jesus were here, who would he see? And as a church, we start to see those people. 
and you ask, if Jesus were here, who would he go speak to and what would he say to them? And you go say that as a church to those people. And if you, you ask, who would he serve and who would he try and seek and save? And we would go try and seek and save those people. That you actually become the collective body of Jesus doing the work of Jesus in the world. That's what the Spirit does when it comes in a community of people that are united. Is it then launches them into doing the things of Jesus in the world. And I've, I've got to tell you, just briefly a few things that this church body has done at Northwest Church of Christ. How many of you were here when it was 25th and Geraldine Church of Christ? Yeah, so a few of you. Um, I went this last week, a week or two, I've been reading a book, Churches of Christ in Oklahoma, history book. Here's a fun, this is fun, we're in the book. We're in the book, and I want to share a little bit of this with you so that you can see that Northwest Church of Christ, used to be 25th and Geraldine Church of Christ, has a history of being a united people that are doing the things of Jesus in this place. It says, with only modest exaggeration, the campaign was an Oklahoma contribution to the evangelistic techniques in churches of Christ nationally. Any of you ever been on a campaign or a short-term mission trip in Church of Christ? It was heavily promoted by Ivan Stewart at the 25th and Geraldine Street Congregation in Oklahoma City. Uh, Stewart was born in Texas, held a diploma from Shawnee High School in Oklahoma, had witnessed Pearl Harbor as a U.S. sailor and attended Pepperdine College in Los Angeles. The idea undergirding his technique was to take a group of people from local congregations to a distant community, flood that community with door knockers and handouts and pamphlets, sign people up for Bible studies, and attract residents to a gathering of praise and instruction campaigns have some of their origin story is in this room in churches of christ oklahoma churches of christ this is a different section sponsored a variety of new youth programs with evangelistic intentions how many of you ever been to a youth rally or part of a youth group blessed by a youth ministry in churches of christ among these new ideas were youth rallies bus ministries summer camps in Oklahoma, the greatest advocate of youth rallies was Big Don Williams of the 25th and Geraldine Church in Oklahoma City. He was one of the earliest ministers with a commission solely to youth in Oklahoma as well as the nation. This, is one, this building is one of the birthplaces of youth ministry in Churches of Christ. Did you know that? That Brahms is the first Brahms store in all of Oklahoma. Did you know that? It's less interesting, but it's also true. <laughs> There's sections in here about how churches of Christ struggled to be in preaching and teaching grace in Oklahoma. Northwest Church of Christ has been preaching grace in this room for 35, 40 years. There's, there's stuff about uh, bus ministries. This church 50 years ago had a split because we couldn't decide whether it was okay to use buses to go out and bring kids from all kinds of different families and situations in the neighborhood and bring them in. Some of them were loud and unruly, and we weren't sure they were here for the right reasons. And we kept bringing them, and some people left. But some stayed. How many of you were part of the bus ministries at 25th and Geraldine? number of people. Some of you are here today because of the bus ministry. Um, one of our former elders came out of the bus ministry at Northwest Church of Christ. Uh, 
there's sections in here about when the church started to change how it viewed divorce and remarriage, realized that the gospel had good news for divorced people. And I certainly believe it does. I don't believe there's anyone that the gospel doesn't have good news for. This is one of the first buildings in Oklahoma where from the pulpit we said, we believe that Jesus Christ has good news for divorced people and that they deserve to experience healing and community and membership in churches. And we stood up and we said that. All of these different things that Northwest has a history of being the church that stood up and said, we think that not everyone's going to like this and that this may be controversial in this time, but we believe that God wants us to do it because the Spirit dwells among us and we see people the way Jesus sees them and we're going to hug them and love them and speak to them the way Jesus would hug them and love them and speak to them. And we do it by the power of the Spirit in us and among us and we're activated to do the work of Jesus in this place. Amen. 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 Isn't it incredible? And you may not even know that history, but when we stand here this year and we say we want to be a people with new vision for what God wants us to do in this place and in our community, and as we go to March for Missions, we don't even restrict that to that. We, we say as God sends us everywhere in the world that God's going to send us, we're ready to go. And we may come up with new things and new ways to do what we've been doing all along. We've got a great track record of doing that at Northwest Church of Christ. God keeps blessing us for stepping out in faith. God keeps blessing us for being the kind of people that even when some things are tough and we're kind of going, boy, I don't know. He says, just stay united. Let the Spirit do its work among you. Be meat eaters, not milk drinkers, and walk forward into this future together as one people, under one God, one Savior, one Spirit, with one hope, speaking with one voice, saying that we believe that God is good and that God will see us through and will bless us richly if we will just go where he's sending. If you've never made a decision to be part uh, of this, if you've never made a decision to be in Jesus Christ, the Bible tells us that you do it through faith, repentance, and baptism, that you are placed in Jesus, the Spirit is in you, you come among us as part of this body of believers that has the Spirit dwelling in our midst. If you need to make that decision and that commitment today, please come forward as we stand and sing.